Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 70, recorded January 5th, 2012. Yes, I said 2012. Welcome 2012. Yeah, so we'll be posting this in March, so everybody will be tired of 2012 by then. Exactly, but now it's kind of a new thing. So, yeah, so uh, we are doing uh, a Next Generation episode. So we're finishing off the second year of the 90s here with uh, episode or issue number 22, 23, and 24. Mm-hmm. A good story arc. Yeah, so it finishes off the five-parter that we started uh, last time we did Next Generation. Right. So what happens to the Einstein shuttle? We will find out. And we'll find out things about a water planet. We will. Which... And it's not doesn't have Mon Calamarians in it. <laughs> no. But as per usual, it's threatened by another hurtling comet. Okay, there you go. Spoiler, dude. Spoiler alert. Yeah, so I didn't get the feeling when I was reading these, but in the letters pages, um, I kind of peeked ahead uh, to what people were writing about these issues, and a lot of people were referring to this as the Galileo 7 Part 2, as if this was a Galileo 7 type Ah. uh, story arc. uh, Galileo Next Gen, a la Next Gen. But, but anyways, I guess I could see a little bit of it, but I, I didn't get that feeling until I, I read those those comments, and I was like, okay. Yeah, I didn't. That didn't even cross my mind as I was reading it. So, all right, well, we'll just jump straight into the the story if if you're ready, there, Ken. I am ready, Donovan. All right. So our first issue is issue number twenty-two. Came out August nineteen ninety-one, entitled Trap. The writer was Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Peter Kraus. Inker is Pablo Marcos. Letterer is Bob Pinaha. Colorist, Juliana Fereder. And editor is Robert Greenberger. So the cover at the bottom of the cover is the word surrounded. And indeed, that is what this picture is. Uh, we have Worf, Wesley, and a male Vulcan uh, in a command uniform in the middle, and they are indeed surrounded by all forms of nasty aliens. We have a couple of uh, Tellarites, some Benzites, and some various human-looking species. And then overlooking all of them is the face of a female Romulan, a male Klingon, and a Ferengi. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's okay cover. We'll have some to talk about it later, I'm sure. So the story starts off with Picard's captain's logs, and it informs us that uh, little time has passed since the loss of the Einstein and the fine crew aboard her, which included Worf, Riker, and Wesley, uh, along with some random doctors, including Dr. Salar. The Enterprise has been assigned to help evacuate a water world called Lanatos, before the planet is hit by a rogue comet. 
when they arrive, the leader of the aquatic species demands that the Enterprise focus their efforts on dismantling and removing some artifacts, and that they have already uh, accounted for the removal of the citizens of the planet. Picard is a little perturbed at coming all this way just to save some statues, but the leader sh stresses the value of these artifacts to his people. So on the other side of the galaxy, the shuttle Einstein is inching closer to the amalgam of various spacecraft that they stumbled upon last issue. While the crew debate on the intentions of the strange space station, they are caught up in a tractor beam. Before they can be pulled into a landing hangar, however, they are caught up by yet another tractor beam coming from the other side of the station. Uh, they get caught in a in the middle of a weird tug-of-war as each beam is trying to direct the shuttle into a different point of the station. Back on Lanatos, Data is suited up in a scuba-type suit, which consists of a big fishbowl helmet, and is overseeing the dismantling of the statues. Data is contacted by Geordi, and the two talk uh, about each other's duties. Data on the planet, and Geordi on the ship preparing some aquatic tanks. Uh, when they close communications, Geordi laments about how much he misses Wesley's help. Back on the shuttle, one side eventually wins the tractor beam tug-of-war, and the shuttle is pulled into one of the hangar bays. Preparing for the worst, the crew draw their phasers and open the door, uh, expecting to have some sort of confrontation. And they're a little surprised just to find a kindly-looking gentleman standing there who calmly says, Welcome. Back in the Enterprise's Captain's Ready's room, Troy and Picard discuss some strange impressions she got from the Lantos leader. She feels that he's hiding something. Picard orders her to go visit the planet, but to keep her job and her telepathic powers secret until they know what he might be hiding. Before she leaves, she asks Picard about his procrastination on replacing Riker and Worf's positions. He agrees with her and states that as soon as the Lanatos mission is over, then he's going to promote Data to Commander and Mr. Burke to Security Chief. Back on the space station, a, the gentleman introduces himself as a Beta Z named Darius Apolline. Uh, he asks the crew to follow him, and he will be able to answer their questions. Uh, back on Lanatos, Troy and a merman is traveling the dismantling site, kind of overseeing Data's work there. The mermaid man assumes that her people must also have similarly prized objects, uh, to which Troy thinks to herself that the Beta Z people have no need for tangible objects. Troy starts to get a weird impression from another direction. She excuses herself and starts to swim off into the uh, away from the dig site or the dismantling site. The merman watches her leave and starts to wonder why she's heading into the, that direction. He silently gets a few of his companions and they follow her. Back on the station, Riker is taken to a medical bay where the doctors can work on him. And Darius begins to explain who and what they are. It seems that over the many years, many ships have been lost into this area of space, and the ships uh, or the ships of these stranded travelers were cobbled together to form the station. Uh, the people on the station were split into two factions, those that side with the Federation and those that did not. 
the ones that were against the Federation are on the other side of the station, conveniently. Uh, when asked why both sides wanted their shuttle, Darius explains that there is a warp-capable ship that arrived uh, and is just a little too far out of tractor beam range. The two sides want the Einstein to help ferry passengers over to the ship and see if they can use it to get home. Back under the sea, Troy follows her feelings to a giant dome-like structure. She finds a spot in the dome uh, that has a huge crack, and she's able to squeeze through. Once she's inside, she finds huge serpent-type creatures. Telepathically, they inform her that they are not going to hurt her. They only wish to get her help to escape from their imprisonment. Just then, the mermaid man that has been following her uh, pops in and tells Troy that she shouldn't be so nosy. And he seals the crack, locking her inside with the creatures. To be continued. Mm -hmm. yes. Interesting. We have a damsel in distress. I kind of like the mermaid people. I, I kind of like the idea that there's an aquatic civilization. I don't necessarily like their superhero type. <laughs> it's exactly. Uh, I, th there's a variety of things that I had comments on with these Lantosians or yeah. Lantosians or whatever. And uh, I, I definitely do not like the superhero outfits. It's like if you're going to be hanging around underwater always what the heck do you want to cape for? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and not only that, but but why wear a one-piece outfit? I mean, it looks like he's wearing... I mean, he has the briefs that you're used to seeing, like on <laughs> Superman and Batman. Right. And then he has the big billowing cape. Yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, and, and, the, and the cape is billowing underwater. It's underwater, and it's like billowing. I don't know what it's made out of, but it probably ain't cotton. Yeah, like I said, I like the idea of the mermaid people. I yes. just didn't like the way they were depicted. Yeah. And or at one, least their their clothing choices. Sure. And one thing one thing I really like about them, agreed, is that this is the kind of stuff you probably wouldn't really see in a TV series. Uh that that you but that you would see in a comic book. Because you know, you're yeah. just drawing stuff and it would probably be a little too expensive probably. Because uh, there's extensive underwater stuff going on in, in these issues, and right. uh, and you just wouldn't see that on the TV series typically. Yeah, you would not. I mean, there's there's been a couple episodes of Voyager and Enterprise where they visited a uh, aquatic species, but it was very limited. They're, they never actually got out in the water and swam around exactly. looking like like you have here, like in SeaQuest. You know, they're on, they're, they're on the submarine. It's a big, huge submarine, kind of Enterprise-like, actually. And, uh, and they do all this stuff, but seldom do you see them actually interacting outside of the sub. Yeah, and when they do, is they're just in the suits, and you could tell they're not really in the water. <laughs> kind of like the yeah. old, uh, like, Voyager to the Bottom of the Sea oh, yeah. movies. I used to love that TV show <laughs> when I was a kid. Now I look back on it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Especially when they're in the belly of the whale. And you can tell they've just got all these blow-up, uh, like like pink blow-up balloons that they're walking on top of. And it's supposed to be the, the whale's stomach. <laughs> it's great. 
Anyway. Anyways. Uh, another interesting thing about the Lanatosians is there's a little bit of webbing in their fingers, which makes perfect sense because, you know, they got to swim and stuff. But it, their feet, their feet look kind I mean, at least in every one that I see, they look like normal humanoid feet. I mean, they even have toes. Uh, you know, you'd think it would be something a little bit more adapted to underwater locomotion. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I only see, like, one picture where it actually shows their feet, and you're right, it does look like normal, pudgy human toes. Yeah. So, uh, page 15, there's a few spots where you can see them, but, uh, they're kind of far off enough. I mean, you don't see any close-ups of their feet. But yeah, you that, see that's enough, the one I was looking at. Yeah, you see enough of that one, at the, bo- the bottom right panel of, uh, 15, you see enough of that one guy's foot from the back. All right. Anyway, it just doesn't it, seem very well adapted to uh, underwater living. Yeah, I mean, that would that puts a big strain on those little pudgy toes when you have to <laughs> swim around with that big billowing cape. Exactly. I mean, that's going to offer some resistance. I would think so. <laughs> and look at that red cape. That's a, that's a great-looking cape. It really is. It's just perfectly... Uh, but it's not a Star Trek thing, and it's not an underwater no. practical... It, it's like a Superman cape. Exactly. But kind of mid-length, you know, not not so long. Anyway. So, talking about the underwater sequences, what did you think of Data's and Troy's scuba gear? Um, I thought the scuba gear, Troy's scuba gear on the cover was pretty cool looking. That's the next issue. Oh, I'm sorry. She's not going okay. to cover this one. My mistake. Issue 2, uh, <laughs> they show Troy close-up. And then a like a serpent behind her or something, so another spoiler alert. But her scuba gear looks pretty cool. They're like it's like black, and she's got a pretty cool helmet on and stuff, and uh, and it's got a big front face plate on it, which makes sense. But uh, but the rest of it on top, the back and the and the top, it looks like you know like a sturdy metal kind of thing. You can't see through it. Where these things are bright yellow outfits and blue flippers and gloves, and then they've got a fishbowl on their head. Right, and I didn't go back and pull those earlier issues uh, where the Enterprise crew visited that that mousetrap-type ship, but weren't their spacesuits kind of the same thing with the big round hmm. fishbowl helmet? You might be right. You so might be right. I was just thinking, oh, they're they're reusing... Those props. <laughs> or those design ideas. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'll admit that the fishbowl kind of thing gives you the best view of the characters' heads and faces and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, from any angle, you know who they are. True. But um, it just, I don't know, it just very it looks very 50s. Very, and it's got like one black hose, plastic hose, like a, like pool hose that you have on your <laughs> your creepy crawly or whatever. Going right, right into the uh, between the uh, the fishbowl and the uh, chest pack, which I assume is what gives them uh, air. Right. There's no air. tanks, though. I mean. Right. It's just like... it's, it's just a small rectangular box, which is like like above the sternum, which apparently why... is producing the air. I guess. And why would Data need one? Ah, another another interesting subject. I was uh, yes, I agree. I mean, the only thing I could think of why he needed one was so that he would be able to communicate normally. 
instead of sounding like. Well, um, this is something I brought up in the next issue, but now that you brought it up, I'm going to – let me see. Okay, what did I say? Um, number one, I was wondering, does Data really need uh, a suit or not? I mean, is he water-resistant? Well, and, you know he is because in well, Insurrection, he was well, walking around. I agree. Up under the water. Okay. In, insurre- in Insurrection, he even uh, showed us his alternate career path, which is as flotation device. So yes, yeah, I hated that part. Yeah, so did I. It, it, it was not good. <laughs> In case of a landing, I can be used as a flotation device. Yeah, it's like, it, you know, that's cool that they they've used data as a humorous, a source of humor in those movies. It's just that you should really make sure it's funny, uh, and and that it makes sense with the character. But whatever. So, right. uh, yeah, there and also uh, there was a regular TV episode. And I don't know exactly which one it was, but Data actually went into the water and had to walk to shore. And Jordy was commenting on it, saying that, and this speaks to his water resistancy, it took almost two weeks to get all the water out of his servos. Huh. Which was a comment that was made. Which is like, hmm, he can function underwater, he can even float with some kind of built-in uh, buoyancy device. But he, if you need to get water out of his servos, he's apparently not fully water-resistant. Uh, I don't remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Memory Alpha. <laughs> I looked it up on because it was like, you know, I remember Data being underwater before. But mm. anyway, so I looked it up a little bit. And, so, and it would make it would if, to me it would make complete sense that he would be that, that they would go to the trouble of making him water water resistant, waterproof. Yeah, yeah, I, I liked in Insurrection when it just showed him walking around and the little fishes were floating next to his head right. and things like that. Right. I thought that made sense because you know he's 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 a robot. But uh. yep. Anyways, I just assumed he was wearing the helmet here because one Insurrection hadn't come out yet and two. <clears throat> they needed him to be able to talk normally. Right. And that assumes that when he talks, he's actually expelling air, you know, Using like a human. Robotic right? vocal mean, cords. He's, he's robot, so why would he even have vocal cords? He just yeah. have a speaker. <laughs> a high-fidelity speaker. Uh, I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't either until you just mentioned it. Uh, anyways. But he does go to the trouble of uh, changing his lips and everything, just like a human, so who knows. Yeah. Anyway, um, a slightly different topic. I thought it was interesting um, how the ships are all cobbled together in the uh, in the space station. Right. And I know we talked a little bit about this in the previous issue where we talked about, uh, I guess, issue 21, when we first saw, this, saw the space station. Yeah, but um, it was very. I, I just just looking at it more in this issue, I thought it was just rather odd, uh, an odd hodgepodge of uh, vehicles, and not only vehicles but but types. Like for instance, there's a um, there, there's something that looks like the round donut shaped 2001: A Space Odyssey um, space station, right? And it's like, 
Okay, I can see a shape like that as a space station. Not quite seeing that as a spaceship. But I guess you could have any shape you want. It just doesn't seem like, like okay, fine, fine. Um, but again, they show the, uh, the, the what kind of looks like a NASA space shuttle in there, so that's kind of cool. And uh, I just... They, they, and and there's, there's one that looks like a... Like a B-2 bomber type, stealth bomber type ship. Oh, right. Yep. Kind of like a wing, a flying wing kind of thing. Right, Whatever. exactly. Right. And then on the very, very bottom, it looks like there's like a compass. <laughs> oh, a compass. Ooh, well, let me look at that one. Well, there's like the bottom of a, um, of a, like what would be a, uh, maybe a, a Romulan or a Klingon bird of prey where the right. where the tractor beam's emitting from. But yep. right next to that, it just looks like a, a, uh, a compass or a or a sundial egg or timer something. or something. Yeah, a sundial. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I noticed that. Right, right. And then right, there's right. a thing that looks like a Sputnik, and there's one that looks <laughs> like a like an old timey battleship. What? Okay, so that's the one on the left towards right. the middle. I agree with that. That looked very odd. It it looks like a boat. <laughs> yeah. So they they threw lots of really interesting shapes and stuff into this thing. Yeah, I really looked through it. To see if there was any type of inside joke where they had like a Star Wars type ship or a, you know, another DC Comics type ship, because you know we've seen where they've snuck in some, like, yeah. So that was kind of a yeah, anyway. The, the space station looks a little ridiculous in some ways, but you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at it and yep. see what see what you can see. I think some of them look like baby rattles and things like that. Yeah. They're really <laughs> throwing whatever they could in there. Well, they're supposed to. Yeah, some look like more like parts of really big spaceships than um you know that 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 then really a mostly intact spaceship right now are all these ships supposed to be from federation alpha type alpha quadrant type species or well that's all you that's all we've seen well that's all I mean, we've seen on it Right, but, but I was but just wondering if if that phenomenon that was sucking in the the ships could have been was it always like in a fixed spot there where where the Einstein hit it or or was it moving around and I don't know that, and, I don't think they, they never ever, they never say I, was, I don't think they ever say uh, but they do know that the that that space structure has been under construction for a long time. Right. Yeah. The the I didn't say it in the synopsis, but the Beta Z guy said that. You know, it was already there when he showed up, and and right. he's the oldest guy there. Right. And so uh, it's interesting, but now, as we will see, as we see more and more of the occupants, we'll see that it's all an alpha, you know, it's just a collection of alpha quadrant people. Or at least they don't bother showing anybody other than alpha quadrant people that we already know about, other than another spaceship that we'll be seeing in the coming issues. Right. And don't you think it's funny that the picture on the cover really has nothing to do with this issue? I mean, this this <laughs> should be the cover of next issue. Yeah. Yeah, and also funny how – oh, should we talk about the cover? Yeah, let's do that. Since Why since not? It's, it is this issue. Exactly. Uh, we see multiple characters on the issue that – on the cover that you don't see in the issue. Or even in the next issue. Exactly. Or period, right. So, like the Vulcan guy you had mentioned, uh, there, there's there's a young uh, Vulcan guy next to Worf, and he's got the red uh, command tunic, and the only Vulcan on the uh, on the Einstein was uh, Doctor Salar. Right, Doctor Salar. Right. Okay. 
And she's um, definitely a woman, and she right. wears blue right. because she's a doctor. Exactly. And this guy's obviously a, 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 a guy, so where the heck did he come from? Uh, and by the way, why are the phasers yellow? The amazing, and I'll get off on that eventually. I, I, am I going to do? No, I'm not going to talk about that here. But <laughs> what? Watch the wonderful colors that phasers become in these three issues. <laughs> okay. So yellow on this cover. So okay, there you go, yellow. So keep that in mind. Uh, and then, of course, there's also a female a Romulan. Right. Uh, looks like a mature one, a milf. And she's uh, there, there. You you never see her inside the, the issue, right? Just to, not to give away too much, but we do see Romulans in the next issue, or at least a Romulan. But we yep. definitely don't see a this one, right? So well, what else do you see on the cover that's kind of odd, Donovan? Um. Well, the 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 artist here uh, really liked uh, the. I said they're Tellarites, aren't they? The little pig people? From Babylon, uh, Journey of Babylon. Right, yeah, so there's like three of them on this cover. Right. Uh, actually, four of them on this cover, so he really liked these dudes. Oh, yeah, uh, the bald guy, the bald Tellarite. Right, yeah, right, so there's right. a bald the Tellarite to the right of Wesley's shoulder, and then to his left, um, our left, his right shoulder. You see another one with his hand kind of waving at us. Right, which because he's got two fingers and one thumb, it looks a little like Live Long and Prosper, the Vulcan <laughs> sign. So you think that's what they were doing as an insight joke? I think. I think so. I think so. I thought he was just raising his hand saying, I matter. <laughs> Excuse me? Excuse me, teacher? No, I think uh, when I first looked at it, I thought it, I, I thought it was straight up the uh, live long and prosper sign. And if a Tellarite did that, well, it'd be look like, looking like that. But it sure would. Since he has two fingers, that's pretty much all he can do if he raises his hand. I never was a big fan of the, the Tellarite guys, especially from the yeah. Journey to Babel. They, they kind of redeemed the species a little bit in my eyes and Enterprise, where they kind of updated the makeup a little bit. But... Right. I never cared for the the pig people. No, well they were rude, rude <laughs> boars. Okay. Uh, of course, it's interesting that um, who Worf and company are surrounded by are uh, Federation friendly folks, and then of course the three above them, kind of superimposed with huge heads, superimposed in the picture, are all of the Federation unfriendly people, at least in the past. Right, because we, we do a Klingon there who is now friendly, but yeah, yeah. good point. Yeah, like I said, I, I really think they make, mix these these two covers up because you know this really is going to have a factor in the next issue, and and Troy swimming in the water could have easily been the cover of this issue. Yep, since she doesn't really do much swimming in the next issue, but I didn't oh. put these together, so nobody asked me. Well, is it is it the next issue we meet the C six C serpents? Oh well, no, they, we they we the saw them at the one. end of this one. All right, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, you're right. This could be an, that could have been either one. So speaking of the the sea serpents, to kind of change subjects a little bit, when she first sees them, uh -huh. uh, she swims in the in the in the little dome area, and then she says, "My God!" And then there's like a thought balloon coming from her that says. Mean you, no harm, need help. And then 
was that supposed to be coming from her or was it supposed to be coming from the the creature? Because later on the creature actually talks um with thought balloon type things, yeah. but it's aimed at him, the the sea serpent. Uh, but that one's definitely aimed at her, so I didn't know yeah, if I it think... just misdirected it or what. Well, uh, I think it's coming from her, and I think the thought balloon, the little trailing off dots, seem to be aimed right at her. Right. But she and the sea serpent head, uh, they are kind of close together. But I'm pretty sure that's, that's Troy's attempt to try to communicate with, with the thing. But why would she be telling it that she needs help? Because uh, she's not sure that it's there to eat her. <laughs> Although, that would be the first thing I'd wonder about, because this thing's pretty big. Yeah, he looks like a, uh, kind of like a water, uh, a sea horse head type thing, but a long serpent-like body. Right. Looks, uh, and it's all red and pebbly looking. Exactly. And he's got flared out, like flared out fins on his head, like at his jowls coming out, which is kind of cool looking. And then little spiny things coming around his head. He's pretty. <laughs> but he's he's a good guy. He just imprisoned nice. in this dome thing. Exactly. He's not there now, to hurt anybody. Now, did you understand the dome thing? Because if you look at the picture where she comes into the crack, yeah, you can see the that you can get to the the surface of the water it looks that way right but obviously that can't be the case although it does look like that doesn't it right and there's grass and there couldn't be grass unless they could actually get to the sun so ah uh -huh. good point i was a little confused as to how Why they were actually yeah. trapped well obviously they're in a cat that's a cavern despite uh, with an artificial wall sealing off the entrance right. but you are completely right about the artistry the backgrounds look very much like they're outside in the uh, in the water in the ocean. Right. Hmm. Oh well. Yeah. Whatever. I look forward to seeing what happens with those guys next next issue. <laughs> yes, because this is going to be an important piece of the puzzle of why uh, they are being so devious or keeping something away from people. Right. The La Lanatosians. So I only have one more comment on this issue, if, if, if I may. Do it. All right. So the, uh, the mermaid man tells Troy that uh, you know he just assumes that her people must have valuable objects as well. And then Troy thinks to herself that the Beta Z people have no need for tangible objects. Uh, does, has Troy never met her mom? Because her mom is always going on and on about how she – has the sacred rings of whatever and the chalisman <laughs> of something something. Hey, let's let let's just go with it. <laughs> Good point. I agree with you. <laughs> I was like, of all people, to say that a whole, that their species has no value to objects. Your mom is like the only one on Star Trek that does have value on particular objects. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. Good point. Good point. Um, my last point is that, uh, you know how I said on the cover, they were, uh, the phasers that Worf and company were using were mostly yellow with some accents of blue. Right. Well, at the end of the issue, inside the issue, they, uh, they're also blue and yellow, 
but in this case, they're uh, they're switching it. They're mo when they're surrounded, uh, the ones they've got out are mostly uh, mostly blue, and in, with some cases just white accents, and in other cases they have yellow accents. So they're all over the map here. Yeah, and I think and I know in some which, cases which no accents. I know which ones you're talking about in the next yeah. issue, where it gets even worse. It does get worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it the next issue? I think it's the next one. Yeah, but I think it is. Yeah. And the phasers get bigger. I mean, they're on the cover. The phasers look normal-sized, but they're on page, what was it, 13? Uh, those bad boys are huge in their hands. Yeah. The Dustbuster-type phaser? Well, that's a, I agree with that. So they alternate between the first series Dustbuster phaser and the correct, um, you know, uh, second, third, fourth season style. Right. Which is, uh, what they, did they call them a Cobra Head? I, I forgot what the, what the nickname was. But they had, like, nicknames for, like, almost all of these different phaser types. Oh, really? Yeah. So the one, uh, the one used in, uh, uh, Nemesis. So the last, the last movie, the next gen movie, um, they had yet another, that one they called the dolphin phaser because huh. that was the sleekest, smallest, uh, phaser, uh, to date. I did not know all that. Yes. And I think it's Cobra Head, the, that, 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 like, fourth, third season was. Anyway. So, um, anyway, I, I just, I just don't know why they're different. <laughs> why do you keep changing the colors of the phasers? I don't get that. Well, I mean. I mean, are they, uh, are they mistakes? Are they just like, hey, we just like to mix things up a bit? It's like, well, why phasers? I mean. Yeah, yeah I think it's a mistake. I, I, I think that there's a lot of moving parts when. When these things get colored, and yeah, uh, they may color it one way on the actual book on the actual page, and then somehow it gets miscolored at the printer, or at least that's what they always mention in the letters column when people call them on it. But yeah, I mean, we don't bust them on data looking normal data color and then normal human color panel by panel anymore, just because if it happens it, so often. Yeah, that's all we would talk about. Yeah, and, and in fact, um, that's that happens again in one of these issues. I'm not sure which one, but it happens in every issue. Oh, uh, all three of these issues that happens. Okay. Yep. I know I've noticed at least one. Yeah, and sometimes it's panel by panel. It's not even page by page. It's like one panel he's flesh colored, next panel he's data colored. I just <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Data colored. Okay. Anyways, I have nothing else on this one. All right, twenty three then. Excellent. This one's called The Barrier, and I think we have the same folks, but I'll just say Michael Jan Friedman, writer, Peter Krauss, penciler, inker, Pablo Marcos, letters, Bob Benaha, colorist, Juliana Ferreter, and editor is Robert Greenberger, like usual. The cover features Counselor Troy underwater uh, in a pretty cool-looking Starfleet skin diver outfit. She is unaware that behind her is a large alien serpent that appears to be a hunter with Troy as, as its latest prey. The tagline of friend or foe appears directly above Troy's head. The story opens 
with Picard sleeping in his quarters when he is awakened by Geordi, who is manning the con. Geordi informs him they have lost contact with Troy. A call from First Governor Imlock interrupts their conversation. He wants Picard to put more manpower on moving the monuments since he says progress is too slow. Geordi informs him work is proceeding on the original laid out timetable just fine. Imlock reminds Geordi of how the monuments are the life's blood of his people and their safety is paramount and terminates the link. Picard said since the work on their precious monuments is proceeding on schedule, finding Deanna is our top priority as he dresses and heads for the bridge. The captain contacts Data and tells him finding Deanna is his top assignment. Data asks for a suggestion as to how to find her, but Picard has no information to give him. So he tells Data it's up to him to work through the problem himself. Meanwhile, Deanna discovers there is a whole herd of the sentient sea serpents that we met in the previous issue, not just one. They were imprisoned in the underwater cavern by the Lanatosians to keep their existence a secret so that the Federation ship would take the monuments rather than the intelligent serpents. Deanna must find a way out or they will all be trapped in the cavern when the comet hits. Meanwhile, on the cobbled together space station, Darius, leader of the Federation contingent, tells Worf and Wesley of their need to use the Einstein to reach the alien ship that appears to have its warp drive intact. Darius also reminds us that they are working on Riker's injuries. Worf asks Darius, even if they get to the ship, and if in fact its drive is intact, they do not know where they are or which way home is. Meanwhile, Data is reporting his lack of progress finding Troy to the captain. Picard is unhappy, but listens while Data reports hearing low-frequency vibrations he just began picking up. They seem to be following a pattern that cannot be accounted for by any natural phenomenon he is aware of in the area. Data turns on his Aquaman super swimmer speed to follow the vibrations to their source. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, First Governor Imlach is reading Picard the Riot Act, since he has sent no more men and Data and Troy have left the area of the monuments. Picard explains that Troy is missing and Data is trying to find her. No apologies from Picard. Imlock threatens that he will contact the Federation for this outrage. Data finds a wall behind which the source of the vibrations are coming. He takes out his phaser and blasts a hole in the wall to discover Troy on the other side. Picard is very happy. Back on the space station, Darius does not answer Worf's original query about not knowing where they are, but rather he brings up two other concerns. Number one, when they attempt to launch again, the opposition is likely to try to snare them with their tractor beam again. If they do not leave the structure quickly enough, the tractor beam tug of war could happen all over again. Number two, the opposition is readying another attack on the Federation-friendly side of the space station. A green-shirted alien enters to report that the hostiles are approaching through the Ormatu Hulk. 
Meanwhile, in the underwater cave, Deanna explains that the intelligent serpents created vi the vibrations Data followed by striking their tails against the artificial wall. Troy was not sure what Data would make of it, but she was sure his android ears would pick up the vibrations and identify them as anomalous. Just then, two Lanatosian thugs appear at the only opening to the cave and aggressively order Data to hand over his phaser or they will start shooting the serpents. Data verbally agrees to their extortion and moves towards them with his phaser's hilt pointing to them. When he gets close enough, Data apologizes and uses his android strength and speed to pull them in and disarm them. Now disarmed, Troy releases the Lanatosian thugs to go tell the first governor that Captain Picard is on to their deceptions and criminal imprisonment of the intelligent serpents. Inexplicably, Troy and Data leave the large serpent creatures in the prison saying that they will return for them. Troy assures them they will not perish there. Once outside the cave, they beam back to the Enterprise. Back on the station, as the two sides are rushing to meet each other on the field of battle, Wesley and the cute brunette, Ensign Negata, share their fear of the coming battle. Wesley wishes they could communicate with the hostiles and come to a compromise, but the Ensign reminds Wes that Dario says they have tried that and tried that before and failed. The lovely Ensign asks Wes to hold her just for a second, which turns into a passionate kiss. Go, go, Wesley! Back on Lanatos, Picard, Troy, and Data are at a conference table with the first governor and three other Lanatosian representatives. The conference room has huge windows on two sides through which the intelligent serpents who call themselves Screedy are viewing the proceedings. Picard says work on moving the monuments will end immediately as the Enterprise prepares water tanks in which to hold the Screedy. Sentient beings will be given priority over inanimate objects. The first governor objects aggressively, stating how important the monuments are to the Lanatosians. He also calls the Screedy primitive and even dangerous to the Lanatosians since there have been attacks in the past. Troy counters, saying that they have only attacked in self-defense and asks the first governor to deny that they hunt the Screedy for sport. The first governor stands and kicks his anger up another notch, saying it's the Lanatosians that are a member of the Federation and not the Screedy, and that the monuments are a thousand times more valuable to the Federation members than the beasts. Finally, having enough, Picard stands and tells the First Governor the Federation membership agreement was never meant to exclude other sentient races on, San on Lanatos. He goes on to say it would be the greatest of injustices to sacrifice an intelligent race of beings for the sake of a pile of stones. Picard ends his argument by saying, given the governor's appalling disregard for the value of life, he's lucky Picard does not leave him behind. Back on the space station, the battle is on. Hand-to-hand -hand combat as well as phasers are in use. Worf is leading the Federation-friendly force. They walk into a trap and are descended upon for the ceiling 
above as well as from directly in front of them. Worf orders them not to panic and keep their focus on the battle. Wesley and Ensign Nagata cover each other's backs. Worf finally ends up fighting another Klingon. They both express surprise that each other are fighting with the enemy. Worf knocks the other Klingon off his feet with a mighty punch. To be continued. Nothing like an old fist fight. Exactly. This is like a good old Wild Wild West uh, saloon bar brawl. <laughs> and you got all kinds of interesting ones uh, involved. You got uh, Gorns. I loved seeing the Gorns. I love that. I love that too. Uh, well, it's only one. Well, okay, fine. And then they got these squid guys. I, I don't recognize them, but they're you know they're pretty nasty looking. Looks like they're pretty big and strong too. Right. Um, and uh, it's cool. See a lot of old buddies, old old enemies, really. You think the squid guy is uh, the doctor from Futurama? Ah! <laughs> Doctor Squidward. Squidward. Uh, Squidward. Uh, that, or else maybe. Well, obviously, it's not um, <laughs> the guy in Star Wars that says it's a trap. Well, that's a Mon Calamari, and they don't have squid tentacles. Admiral Akbar. Yeah, Admiral Akbar. Okay, there you go. Cool. All right, so uh, yeah, no, I, I like the fight, and that's why I think that the previous cover should be on this one because this actually has, you know, the Tellarites in it and the other, yep. other species. Yep, I do agree. So, do you like uh, when Data does the six million dollar man uh, super swimmer thing on page six? <laughs> no, I hated it. <laughs> you ha- what? Oh come on, you liked it? I loved it. You know, you I don't think that, I don't think there's enough of that. Data <laughs> is stronger, faster. You know, I mean, than anybody on the ship. I mean, he could take anybody's ass, no problem. And I, you know, with all those abilities, I, I was. I mean, I know they didn't want to turn it into like the six million dollar man kitschy kind of thing, but it's like. You never, you almost never saw any of that on the TV show. Uh, the only thing you ever saw was him strong, picking yes. up things that were really heavy, or you know, things like that. Right. Yeah, there was a there was also a book that was written by uh, John Bonhert or something like that. I forgot his last name, but in that one, he had Data jumping like over people's heads and just like you know, almost like the Incredible Hulk type. Right. He would jump, and then he, you know, 100 feet down the road, he would land. And I hated that. I was like, I understand he's synthetic, and he technically should be able to do all that stuff, but it just doesn't ring true for me in Data. Well, it, it makes him less human-like. It, it reminds you that he's not human. Right, but, I mean, like you said, we never see that kind of display on the show itself. Right. And him having like propeller feet or or Aquaman <laughs> feet, uh, that was I just didn't like it. One, I don't understand why he's buoyant like a like a human would be. Well, I mean, he should be walking on the ground. <laughs> well, he's got he's got a buoyancy device, so you know we know that. Of course, not when this was written, right? Right. No. No. He he wouldn't be classified as a flotation device until many years later. <laughs> For humorous effect in insurrection. Uh, but but uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. 
I, I didn't I didn't care for it, but you liked it. You liked seeing his super speed. Oh, I thought that was great. That was cool. Okay. Liked it. I don't want to see that, you know, the the amazing data feed of the week. I don't want to see too much of that, but I just thought uh, you know, they didn't show almost any of that going on in the TV show. Right. And then when he gets to the dome area, he uh, pulls out his phaser and shoots it. Have we ever seen phasers work underwater before? No. But as long as the power source is properly insulated so you don't electrocute yourself, um, lasers should work underwater. It's just that uh, I'm pretty sure they get diffused more quickly, so you wouldn't have the same kind of range. But who knows? But these aren't lasers. These are phased. <laughs> well, okay. Oh, okay, but it's light, right? It's a directed energy S- weapon. Some but it's a directed it's a directed energy weapon that shoots light. Right? Does it shoot light or does it shoot like some sort of like plasma type? I don't think it's they never use the word plasma. Yeah, they don't. It's all made up, I know. Yeah, but so. still. Of course, interestingly enough, when you shot it, wouldn't it like totally vaporize all the water around it or something? Right. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, what if I'm it was thinking. if it was that hot. But yeah, whatever. I mean, you could shoot a rock and make it into like a, a glowing stone. So obviously, there's some heat there. So if you right. shot it through water, it would just boil the water away in between right. you and whatever you're but maybe shooting. He didn't, at, right? he didn't use the heat setting like Sulu always did when he was on planets. <laughs> oh, there's a separate sea. There's a there's a heat a... setting. There is a heat setting. Okay. No, I'm not making it up. I, I, I don't think you are. I, I believe you. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. When I first saw that the phaser was working underwater, I was like, eh, eh, eh. but whatever. You got to go with it. Yeah. It's science fiction. It's a cartoon. What do you want? So, Ensign Nagita. So, last episode, we talked about her, how she seemed kind of sweet on Wesley and then mentioned that the only reason why she went on this mission was because she wanted to get closer to Riker. Yes. And now that Riker's in his coma, she's full-flown Wesley. Yeah, she's a Wesley fan. Exactly. <laughs> so what's going to happen when Riker wakes up? She'll be like, oh, Riker, give me a <laughs> Uh Excuse me, boy. I need to speak to the big man here. Come on. Come on, Riker, buddy. You're not hairy enough, Wesley. Exactly. <laughs> Come back in a few years when you've grown up. And speaking of grown up, is it just me? I mean, was this supposed to be consistent with the fourth season? Or yeah, I what? think so. Okay. Wesley looks kind of mature. Was he that mature looking in, in the fourth season? I don't know. It just seems like yeah, he's kind of so. mature looking. I mean, he would be, what, 15, 16 years old? Oh, man. Well, he he looks more mature than that. Yeah, at times he's... In the comic book. Right, I agree. And by the way, did Wesley, by the fourth season of of Next Gen, or actually any season for that matter, uh, is this Wesley's first kiss? Uh, I thought that he kissed... um, Well, there's that episode of the show with with, uh, Ashley Judd that I think he kisses on. Oh, Ashley Judd. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, it, yeah, I never real. Yeah, that's another good example of somebody that became famous later, right? Who you you your memory never retroactively went back to. Hey, I recognize her from Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't remember what season that was in. So it, it could have been before this one or or after. I don't know. Okay. Cool. But anyways. Anyway, 
But Wesley has the almost Kirk-like hair, and he just looks pretty mature. Yeah, and you know he has the comic book musculature, so he's kind of. he's well built. Yes, for a fifteen-year-old. Yes, yes, sixteen-year-old, whatever. Anyway, I just thought that was a little, uh, you know, kind of maturing him a little bit in the look to to better fit the romantic lead that he has become. In this issue, yes. In this yes. issue. So, so uh, with the uh, the Klingon that was uh, on the bad side. Yes. I almost wish they would have used a smooth, smooth-headed Klingon from the original series, since all these other aliens seem to be from, you know, leftovers from from that era with the Tellarite and the Gorn and all that stuff. Or do you think that would have been just too confusing? Um, it seems like he's more from the movie era, or maybe a little post-movie era. Right. Because yeah, how yeah. how old could this guy be? Well, I assume that he was probably from. Well, yeah, because he would have had to been before Star Trek Six, right? Because um, after Star Trek Six, aren't the Federation and Klingons? Well, they're in the process of warming up with each other, right? Yeah. Well, they were in the beginnings of reconciliation. Right. When the Chancellor was assassinated. Yeah. So yeah. So he has to be. He has to be pretty old. Yeah. And he looks pretty young here. Yeah, yeah, but he's still got the knobby head like they had in uh, in the movie. But he, he could, you know, you don't know how long he's been on this 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 ship though either. Right. I mean, he he could have been a little, you know, a little kid, you know, fifteen year old <laughs> kid or something. He was yeah. a cook on the, you know, on a, on a Klingon ship, right? The cabin boy or whatever. And then now he's the most senior Klingon. So ship. one clue might be from where he is. Uh, the Klingon, where the Klingon's from, is uh, maybe his uniform. So is it more like uh, next-gen uniform, or is it more like a uh, original cast uh, movie uniform? Now, I didn't go back and, and research it or anything, but when I was reading it, I, I thought it looked like a uh, like a Christopher Lloyd-type Star Trek three uniform. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately you didn't get the smooth head. Sorry, man. Well, yeah, well, they can't – I don't think they were allowed to mention it. <laughs> yeah, let's not remind people <laughs> of how they change from the t- from the old TV show. Yeah, and uh, when did Gene Roddenberry die? Because didn't he die around around this time frame, late 1991? Uh, probably. I mean, he's been dead a while. Right. Yeah, it so. sounds right. I'm not good with dates, though. Yeah, me either. So, anyways. Okay. Anything else for this one? Uh, let me see. Uh, my last comment is... Well, actually, two comments. Definitely at the end of this issue, Worf's phaser is blue with yellow accents. So I just want to mention that. Consistent with last issue? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are some where there's no accents at all. It's just all blue. They probably just didn't bother to, to paint in anything other than the, just the straight blue. But this one is blue with little yellow accents. So remember that, especially when we get to the beginning of the next issue, the title page. Um, and the other thing just to mention is, did I miss something? I mean, when Picard talks about the possibility of leaving the first governor behind to perish, um, I thought they said at the beginning 
of when they start talking about the assignment to 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 aid in the evacuation of the Lenotosians that they didn't have I thought they didn't have enough ships to get everybody off. I think that's what they were originally told and that's why he was so perturbed when he shows up and they say, "Oh no, we got all the people. You just need to work on the okay, the, the artifacts." Exactly. Okay, so fine. So I think his 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 little kind of sort of threat to leave the governor behind doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, because of how badly he's been behaving. Because uh, they got their own ships, so I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an empty threat. Yeah. Anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting, um, and didn't make a lot of sense if you thought about it enough. But. Yeah. And what I think's interesting is last issue we saw Jordy working on these containers right. uh these water tanks yep knowing that they weren't going to be ferrying any of these people because they all got rides somewhere else so yeah. it's almost like it's convenient that he has these big tanks yeah i mean they made it seem like they were going to put the monuments into the tanks and Which the I... thing is some of those monuments might fit in there and maybe there's a reason why you'd want them to continue to be in water just so they continue to be preserved rather than being exposed to the air. But most right. of those monuments are huge. Exactly. I mean, they're, really, they're really big. They need to go like in the cargo bay or something. <laughs> or just just put them in the pattern buffer and wait till you get, <laughs> wait till you get there. They just dematerialize. You know, if you think about some of the technologies that are, are used in Star Trek, it's like stuff like that. It's like, you know, if somebody wants to live forever – you know, do what Scotty did. Uh, you know, stay or in the pattern buffer. Yet, if you don't, or, if you want to be around, just do what they did with Doctor Perlowski. Just keep some of your old hair from when you were young, and just you know, beam you young ever so often. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you think about all the things that could happen, or if you want an army, I mean, because think about how the transporter works. Um, it, well, this it, transporter it creates... doesn't work that way, so. But, yeah, but you're think right. about what it's doing. <laughs> it's scanning you and basically recreating you someplace else. But you've still got the original you from the original point of departure. That's so how if, this transporter works. So yeah. if you want to have a clone warrior, uh, you know, army, just use a transport and don't destroy the first copy. Anyway. Oh, that's only been done a few times, and it was by accident. You know, <laughs> for Tom, and, Thomas Riker. Or, yeah. Was it Tom? Yeah, I think Thomas it was Tom. Riker. Yeah. And then I guess you could count the uh, splitting of Kirk as an oh. example of that too, but <laughs> a little different. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. No, uh, I get you. It, it would be a, a prestige thing. You saw that movie, right? Oh, the prestige, yes, exactly. Anything else for issue 23? Not a thing. All right, so let me jump into 24, and as the cover says, it's a 48-page anniversary issue. Yay! So this should go pretty quick. Yeah, well, I was going to save it for our notes, but all over here it says 48-page. In the previous issue, it was advertised as next month, 48-page spectacular. Yep. Yep. When you read the comic, it's 40 pages. Where the extra eight pages are, they must have lost them somewhere. And and because you bothered counting, I didn't. Um, no, they're numbered. They're not. Well, okay. So 
Okay, so not even the uh, commercial pages, the pages with just ads in them. Well, they don't usually count the commer- the ads as as part of the comic book. So, like last uh, last week, we did the original well, series, okay. and okay, it so, was so a maybe forty the... page actual forty pages of comic. So maybe they were counting that great Jean Claude Van Damme ad at the back of the comic. <laughs> Double think. impact, Jean Claude Van Damme. You think so? I don't know. I do think it's funny that, you know, since you brought up the ad, the very first ad in this book is Necessary Roughness, which was be starring Scott Bakula. Oh! So knowing, you know, reading, looking at that ad, Scott Bakula, knowing that in just a few decades, he will be captain of the Enterprise. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, since we're talking about ads, real quick, there's a human target ad. Oh yes, I when I saw that I said, "Oh, there you go." That's that's why Donovan was so into that TV series. Okay, it was, good. it was a good TV series. But what's awesome about this ad is that it's talking about the comic book, right? And then at the bottom it says, "Based on the up or based on the upcoming ABC TV series." So they actually did have two attempts at at this. Yep, they did on TV. The first series starred John Mellencamp. I don't think it's John Cougar Mellencamp, but it's John Mellencamp. <laughs> That's interesting. And it lasted like six episodes. Okay. Because I remember when I was um, when I was seeing references to this in IMDb and other places uh, that they that they made a big point of having the year after the uh, the name the title right. of the uh, series to yeah. distinguish it from another one. And I thought the other one had I mean I thought they had nothing to do with each other other than the name, but uh, obviously not so. Yeah, they're based on the same source comic book material. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Star Trek. Yes. All right. So issue number 24, entitled Homecoming, came out October 1991. Uh, Writer, artist, editor, and letterers, all same people. So I won't go through that again. Uh, The cover shows Picard right in the middle, um, depicted there uh, in the middle of the page with his hands on his hips. And behind his head, we see the Enterprise flying by, and there is a picture of a starburst or supernova-type thing uh, radiating from below Picard's belt. So it's a it's an awkward picture. And uh, from this radiation uh, in his midsection, we see two Klingon uh, ships flying away. And the cover states that this is going to be a 48-page anniversary issue. So the story starts off with Worf and the crew firing phasers at the oncoming horde of attacking aliens. Uh, And a a male Romulan gets through the phaser barrage and attacks Worf with his fists. The two of them battle it mano a mano until the Romulan pulls out his disruptor and takes a shot. But he misses, and Worf is able to recover his weapon, and he shoots the Romulan in the neck. Hopefully on stun, because that would hurt. Uh, This seems to be the turning point in the battle as the attackers start to pick up their injured and they retreat. Worf orders Nagita and Wesley to assist him with the retrieval of the alien ship. Once they're somewhat alone with only Worf able to eavesdrop, Nagita apologizes for her kissing Wesley last issue. Wesley says he forgives her as long as it does not stop her from doing it again. On the Enterprise, the crew and the Lantosans 
uh, watch the comet smash into their planet. The Lantosan leader is on the bridge with Picard, and he mourns over the loss of his planet and all the monuments. Crusher tries to get him to stop mourning over the loss of things uh, that the, the people were able to, to survive. Uh, the leader states that he is going to file a complaint uh, as soon as they get to their new planet uh, at the loss of the monuments. Uh, and since the Enterprise spent all that time saving the serpent creatures. Back on the space station, Wesley is taking the Einstein in for a closer look at the alien craft. He flies close to it and docks with it. They board the ship, and they start to make preparations to go back to the space station and beam the remaining crew and the space station inhabitants over to the escape craft. On the station, Riker regains consciousness, but he is not very coherent. The doctors are all pleased with his progress. Back on the Enterprise, Troy talks to one of the serpent creatures about her recent loss. You know, losing Riker and Wesley and Worf. The creature understands her loss, but he states that life must go on. Alright, so we bounce back to the alien craft where Worf has just finished beaming over the friendly inhabitants. The Bezad Daros asks Worf what his plans are to do with the hostiles. At first, Worf says that he plans to leave them. But after some light coaxing, uh, Daros is able to get Worf to change his mind. He, using the communications equipment, he contacts the hostile aliens. He tells them his intentions of transporting them all home. At first, they think it's some sort of a trick. But eventually, they see the light and they agree to uh, be beamed aboard. Back on the Enterprise, uh, we have arrived now to the new planet where the Lantosians and the serpent creatures are going to be relocated to. And everybody is beamed down, and there's some talk about how the two races are going to have to learn how to work together on their new planet. On their way back to the bridge, Picard tells Troy that he is now following through with his plans to replace Riker and Worf. So we bounce back to the alien craft. Wesley is working on the controls. He finally figures out how to get the craft to, to go. And the craft shoots out into warp, looking something like the Millennium Falcon. Wesley is amazed at the craft's speed and then states that it's traveling much faster than the Enterprise's capabilities. And that they, are, they might even have a chance of overshooting the Federation space altogether. Back on the Enterprise Bridge, Picard requests Data and Mr. Burke to join him in his ready room. We bounce back to the ship, where Wesley is able to get the craft to stop. But in doing so, the communications have gone out, and the engines are overloading and about to explode. Nagita informs Worf that they are in the middle of Klingon space. Worf is worried that with the alien uh, ship in the middle of the Klingon Empire, that it'll, it'll look like some sort of invasion, and that since they don't have any communications to tell them otherwise that they are all in danger. In Picard's ready room, he's about to give Data and Burke his prom their promotions when he is interrupted by a Klingon commander. The Klingon informs Picard that an unknown alien vessel has arrived, and he wants to make sure that it's not a Federation ship before they destroy it. Picard asks the Klingon to hold off his attack until the Enterprise can come in and, and investigate. On the alien craft, Worf and the crew watch as several Klingon cruisers and the Enterprise herself start to surround the craft. Troy is starting to get a strange feeling from the ship. 
but it is but she's not sure because it's a mixture of several races including humans Picard contacts the Klingon commander and proposes a daring plan he will beam over to the ship and lower its shields and if he's able to do that then the Klingons will hold off on destroying the ship Data talks to Picard on his way to the transporter room offering to take his place and that this, that this is something that a captain should not be doing Picard refuses, and O'Brien is able to somehow match his shield frequencies or match the teleportation to the shield frequencies and, and is able to beam him over. Picard appears in the cargo hold with all the, the hostile aliens. There he's attacked, but he's able to eventually tell them why he's there and what the risks are if he cannot get a hold of the bridge and lower the shields. They eventually see reason and stop their attack. On the ship's bridge, Worf is informed that a human has beamed over, and he goes to investigate. He is shocked to see Picard, and Picard is thrilled to see all of the Einstein crew still alive and well. Picard gets the shields down, and the Enterprise is able to get everyone off the ship before it explodes. All of the aliens from the space station are eventually sent back to their home worlds, both the hostiles and the non-hostiles. And the Enterprise crew are brought all back together again. In the closing comments, Picard comments to himself uh, if his delaying of accepting the loss of the Einstein's crew was an error. He dismisses this, stating that the crew has become a family to him, and he finds great comfort in having his family back with him. The end. That's great. Picard <laughs> the family. Thanks, Dad. All right. Yes. So all is well again, after a series of very unlikely things towards the end of the uh, issue. Unlikely? Like, I, I did not like the whole Picard goes to tell them to come to the ready room, and then it bounces back over to the ship, and then it bounces back over to them. Well, Mr. Data, I have to tell you, and then it bounces back over to the ship, you know, about to enter normal space it, it, there was a lot of bouncing back and forth that was trying to build some sort of suspense but yeah, yeah. I, I never felt it yeah and plus the idea that the the ship just so happens to be advanced enough that it'll take them a great distances so uh that the that the progress of the story does not have to be impeded by a long trip back since they've obviously been thrown very far away from their Alpha Quadrant original uh, location. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, I, I know that since they didn't have warp drive, that it was going to take them a long time to get back to Federation space. But, I mean, do you really have to be that far out of Federation space at Impulse to oh, no. take a generation to get home? Oh, well, no. I mean, at impulse speed, you could be in the uh, in the solar system next door and take forever to get back. Right. So but I, I, I never given... quite got how far away from the Federation space they really were. Right. But the fact that all that time could have been spent where all those ships were cobbled together and the fact that um, nobody came upon them, which, of course, space is a big thing. I mean, somebody could be, like, in the middle of the heart of, uh, of the Federation, and who knows, it's just an area nobody went to. True. Because uh, it was a boring solar system that had no, uh, you know, no, no, no habitable planets. But uh, they're given an impression, I mean, they're given the impression anyway that it was pretty far out there. Um, 
So anyway, the fact that they've got this uh, red-hot ship that can go faster than, than the Enterprise even thought about going, and the fact that they couldn't really control it, and then they weren't quite sure how they were going to stop it, and then the fact that it the, the engines overheated and stalled out or whatever they did, just as they were entering into somebody's space, happened to be Klingon. Um, and then the Klingons and, just happened to contact Picard and ask Well, them. exactly. They just happened to find the ship. And then they happened to contact closest uh, Federation ship. I mean, would that be the first thing you would do? No, uh, you'd probably blast not. <laughs> you blast it. You're a Klingon. Of course you'd blast it. And then... Uh, and then it just so happens to be Picard, and then Picard realizes the importance of this thing, even though he doesn't know that it had his people are on it at all. He drops everything and heads over there, and I don't know. And, I agree. And he, and he happens to be that close to to Klingon space that he's able to get to where the Klingons are, into Klingon space, to this spot, uh, before the Klingons get trigger happy and blast the ship. Oh, and by the way, the engines are supposed to be blowing up at any minute this whole time. It's just, oh my god. What a mess. <laughs> yeah, a lot of conven convenient coincidences there at the end. Right. They're just moving things along. We, we, we need to get Dad together with the kids. With the missing kids. <laughs> so we could have our happy thing at the end. Yeah, and, and all those aliens that they beam over... I mean, some of those didn't look like any Federation creatures I've ever seen before, like the the weird robot guy and oh, yeah. some of the other ones. So yeah. th that's what got me to thinking that. I mean, are all these are all of these aliens even from the Federation space, or even the Alpha Quadrant itself? Right. And that you know, how are you going to take all these people back if if they came from the you know, Gamma Quadrant or something like that, and they yeah. somehow hit that wormhole thing that, that exactly. got them there. Right. So, yeah. <clears throat> and how about that, that guy? I mean, that, not the weird robot with the uh, with the uh, Lost in Space robot head. Not that guy, but the other guy that had the red and yellow outfit on, the big bruiser guy who was trying to get after uh, Picard. And yeah, he had that weird... Boots. In the weird boots, and he, and he had that look on his face. He looks like some kind of a manja guy or something. <laughs> yeah, and he has oh, like a bullet helmet on. It, yeah, he's just he's just so weird looking. Definitely yeah. never saw that alien before. Who looks kinda... actually pretty human. Oh, he looks really human. Yeah. But so do a lot of aliens. Funny about that. <laughs> I, I like the Lost in Space-esque alien, though. I thought he, Or robot. I thought he actually looked pretty cool. Yeah. With those skinny, right. spindly arms, but he has the Lost in Space robot helmet head. Right. Yep. I thought that was cool. Yep. Yep, yep. Anyway, so in the end, they believe him, and they get together, and oh, thank God. It's taken so many issues for it to happen. <laughs> anyway. And then I liked how Riker wakes up for just that one panel, or that one page. Right. And he's like, we got to get back home. <laughs> and then you don't see him again until they're already back on the Enterprise. Yeah, you see him like in on the last page of the story. Right. So I guess they just had to pay him his cameo fee or something. <laughs> yeah, he didn't do much, did he? He gets so much screen time per episode. It's in his contract. Right. There, you go. there you go. Anyways. Um, got to point it out. 
title page of this issue. The what color page. are Worf's and the Ensign and Wesley's phasers? They're red because they've been shooting them so much they've grown hot. <laughs> They're red with yellow accents, yes. So they look kind of like uh, uh, hot dog condiments. <laughs> it's that it's that same color, ketchup red, and you know, bright yellow mustard color. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, as soon as you started talking about phaser colors, I remembered uh, the red hot phasers right. from this issue. Exactly. Now maybe they were trying to like subliminally kind of say, "Ooh, you know, this is battle. Oh, red, lots of red." You know, I don't know. But uh, I don't know. I, I just, <laughs> I'd rather have accuracy, please. Accuracy. Uh, I kind of like on that same page. The uh, I forgot the name of the alien. You'll probably know it. You know all these things. But um, the guy that had that little respirator thing in front of his face that yeah, Wesley Benzite. Oh, of course you knew that. Uh, right, the Benzite. So the guy that Wesley knew in in Starfleet Academy or something. Right. Right. Yeah, he he's not colored very consistently because there his face is blue and his ear and mouth are like a brown color. And then you turn right. the page, and I think it's like flipped or something, or maybe oh, it was the other right. issue. Oh, no, no, it's on page four where the top of his head is like uh, white, fleshy colored, and then his face is blue. So he's kind of all over the place, coloring-wise. Yep. Yep. Anyway, got to see a lot of aliens. So speaking of aliens, mm -hmm. uh, first... On page six, we got the destruction of the Lanatos planet. I thought that it was actually a really cool picture of the comet smashing into the planet. Right. That is pretty cool. And then we cut to the bridge, and we see the Lanatos leader standing <laughs> on the bridge with his big red cape. Oh, yes. And, and his now... superhero physique. <laughs> And he's wearing a fishbowl helmet, but now the fishbowl has water in it. Exactly, as you'd expect. It was handy that the uh, the alien ship that had a super fast warp drive, it was yeah. handy that that ship, that the engine blew up. It was handy. Or else you'd have that super fast advanced uh, engine in Klingon space. Which Picard could not allow them. Well, I guess they were friends, but who knows? You never know. It would be destabilizing in some way to have a, a, a engines that fast. Right. And where did that ship come from? I don't know. Especially if all these people are from the Alpha Quadrant. That was the interesting thing. And you really don't know. Some of those aliens we saw there, we never saw before. No, but uh, Picard says they will all be taken home. Yeah, I know, but... Okay, so, so we have an interesting hodgepodge. Uh, I mean... Supposedly, only Alpha Quadrant folks get thrown out to the spot, wherever the hell the spot is, except for the super fast ship, <laughs> which doesn't seem quite, quite uh, right. That's another convenient thing. Yeah, it seems like it should be more like a, okay, so fine, a lot of the folks there are Alpha Quadrant folks, but probably not everybody, but eh, whatever. Anyways. I'm just being nitpicky because of that last comment where he says everybody was will be taken home right. to their home worlds. Yep. That's all I got. 
So, you know, for being not... 40 pages, we didn't really have a lot to talk about. No. No, we had more to talk about before <laughs> the other issues. But uh, so th- th- this this issue was a fair number of pages, but it was just really just wrapping up, uh, wrapping up the two storylines. And it was, let's see how many conveniency, uh, convenient coincidences we can cram into 40 pages. Exactly. Just to wrap this thing up. Right. Come on, guys, let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of wrapping up, let's go ahead and finish this this episode. Uh, we have six uh, Star Trek episodes that came on this this these three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go through them real quick. I, I honestly can't remember some of these, so uh, we probably won't talk for them very long. Uh, the first one was the Redemption Part 2, which was the season opener. Um, this was the one with the, the tensions between the Klingons and the Federation, right? Yeah, was this the one that had anything about uh, Worf's clearing his father's name or no? Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, at least the title would make more sense, but... Right. Okay, yeah, I, we, I don't remember exactly. I probably should have watched that episode or looked it up some more, but I didn't, and we're running long, so... Right. Move All right, on. so the, the next one was uh, Darmok, which is a really good episode. That's the one where Picard is stranded on that planet with that one alien and they don't have a communicator so they're having to kind of learn how to communicate with each other. Right. And the gentleman playing the Darmok is the same guy who was the captain of the Reliant on Star Trek 2. If you remember who that oh, was. Oh right, 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 right. Uh Paul Whitfield or something like that. Yeah, so I I I like that episode. Yeah, it was kind of a little enemy mine-ish or something. Exactly. Yes, and I love Enemy Mine. And they had to uh, learn to work together. Yeah, I liked that movie too. I thought that was pretty good. You should read the book. Okay. It was a book. It was a book. It was a short story before it was a movie, and then the same author who wrote the short story wrote the novelization for the movie, and oh. and the novelization goes into quite a bit more detail than the book the movie did. Mm-hmm. I mean, like with the like, war, the human, whatever not, war. Not only that, but also it. It doesn't end in the same place. It like continues, so it's really oh. like what happens in the movie plus basically the next chapter in that little boy's life. Ah. It, it's really good. You should uh, try to find that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, the next issue or next episode was Ensign Row. Mm-hmm. So I believe this was the first time we saw Ensign Row, if I'm not mistaken, and we learn about Bajorans for the first time. Right. I enjoyed this this episode. I can't remember. Is this the one where Riker busts on Ensign Rowe for wearing the earring? Or is that later? I don't remember. I but, always but thought I... that was odd that he, he gave her such grief about wearing the earring when he lets Worf walk around in that sash all the time. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. And they're both cultural um, symbols of, of their uh, of their people. So. Right. He really shouldn't be that. Besides, I mean, like earrings, who cares? I don't know. But all I know is that wasn't Roe uh, supposed to be the one to be the Bajoran lead in Deep Space Nine, but then it didn't work out with the actress or something? Or Yeah, right. Okay. And if you look at Ensign Roe's um, uh, makeup, yeah. she has a different type of nose than what they ultimately used for the Bajorans in Deep Space Nine. Oh. Huh. 
She has like some extra ridges like uh, between her eyebrows. Oh. But I guess to make it simpler, they just cut that part out on everybody else. Oh, cool. Isn't it? I thought so too. That's interesting. I did not realize that. Yeah, and also I think Ensign Rowe wears her earring on the wrong ear. So when they made Deep Space Nine, they moved it to the other ear. <laughs> so what was the cultural significance of the ear? Well, at the time, it's it's supposed to be the same cultural reference, but if, you, if you're if you a nitpicker like we are, you probably catch that it switches ears between Ensign Rowe on Star Trek Next Generation and the Bajorans on Deep Space Nine. Okay. I, I don't think there was any significance. I think just, you know, when they mass-produced all that stuff for Deep Space Nine that for some reason they switched it to the other ear. I don't even know if it was intentional. You know how things change. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do know that the nose thing changed because they just wanted to make the makeup simpler. Yeah. Well, they got to do that every day, you know, 16 hours a day or whatever the shooting schedule was. Yeah, for 50 people, 50 Bajorans that are going to be on the show that day. Right, right. Makes sense. All right. So the next episode was Silicone Avatar or Silicon Avatar. Uh, this was another of the Crystalline Entity episodes. Oh. And I honestly can't remember this one at all. I don't remember that one. <laughs> I don't. And I didn't look it up. So I apologize, everybody, who whose favorite episode that one is. So the next issue or the next episode was Disaster. Uh, do you remember that one? Is this where the... Uh... Where the Enterprise is severely damaged, and they are all cut off in different parts of the ship, and they need to get the ship going again, and it's, like, really precarious. Yeah, I think that's something like that. Yeah. Uh, a chance for the uh, some of the crew and characters to pair off in isolated parts of the ship and overcome their own individual uh, challenges getting the ship going again. Now, that's not one that's where Data recall. loses his head, is it? What? Uh, he lost his head more than in Time Zero? Um, yeah, I don't know. Did he? I, I didn't know he had. I, I thought he did. I thought that like his body was in one place and his head was in another place. Oh, hmm, interesting. I don't, I don't know. That. It's been a very, 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 very long time since I saw that episode. I'll be honest, uh, and this is just me. I kind of fell out of Star Trek around season five. It was starting to get not as good. It's just that, you know, I was a senior in high school, and you usually find other things to do on Friday night than watch Star Trek. I'm not proud of really? it. Really? Like I regret what? it. To this day, I regret it, but that's just how it went. Anything else on that, Ken? No. All right, and the last episode for this season, or this this three-month period, was um, The, the game. game. Oh, you're looking it up, too? I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'll be honest, I can't remember this one at all. Oh, I remember that one. Oh, yeah. Well, the name doesn't sound familiar. What what is it? Yeah, that's one that was basically taking the phenomenon probably that was going on then, where uh, where you know, in in our modern time, people were really getting obsessive with uh, some of their video games, video game consoles and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they transfer that to the future. So. Wesley comes on board with this little, uh, it's like a really thin visor thing that has lights that play into your eyes or something, and you can play a game, uh, a video game, with this little visor thing. The only thing is, it's extraordinarily addictive, 
before long, you don't want to do anything other than play this game. Oh, and okay. uh, fr- from Wesley, m- they replicated more of these visors until finally uh, most of the crew, uh, all they were doing were playing this game. So it actually turned out to be a um, a way to take over the Enterprise. Or that's what it was supposed to be. Okay. So some well, entity, I forgot exactly who, Frangi or somebody. Somebody was trying to take over the Enterprise. Now, wasn't there a similar episode like that on Deep Space Nine? Where there was like a self-replicating gambling game or something that everybody was kind of getting addicted to? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe. And... Quark ended up being the hero because he wanted to stop it because it was cutting into his, into his profits. <laughs> he in- inadvertently saved the, the station. <laughs> I need to save my Dabo tables. <laughs> uh, you don't remember I, that one? I, I, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. And, and I remember the video game one now that you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah it was okay. It was okay. And that's exactly how we are now. Everybody's addicted to words with friends on their phones. I don't know what that is. Oh, uh, it's the the game that Alec Baldwin was playing and ended up getting kicked off the plane because he wouldn't stop playing it. Oh, you're kidding! Oh, really? Is this recent? Yeah, it happened a couple weeks ago. Oh God, what a jerk! <laughs> I hate people like that. I do too. I mean, turn off the stupid phone. Jeepers. Some people. Yeah. It, it's it's bad. Yeah. All right. So uh, next week, we are going to do our first of the miniseries called the Modella Imperative miniseries. Okay. okay. So it was a eight-part miniseries uh, that crossed over the Next Generation and the original right. series timelines. Right. So uh, to... Unfortunately, since there was eight and and we're spreading it out between three episodes, uh, next week we're only going to do two issues, and then we'll do three issues on episode 72 and three issues on episode 73. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll have, have a light week next week. We'll have a shorter uh, episode than normal. Something, something a little bit more towards what we always shoot for. <laughs> An hour or less. Right. But it'll also be opening up a brand new can of worms since it's a kickoff of an eight-part miniseries. I'm sure there's going to be lots of establishing things right. that we'll talk talk more about. Cool. Cool. All right, then. So until next week, we'll talk to you guys later. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us on Star Trek Comic Book Review. I thought I'd make it. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.